Do you want to know more about how you can eat for better health and longevity and how to advise patients based on sound evidence so they can reduce the burden of chronic disease through diet and lifestyle? Then you're in the right place. We aim to bring you all the latest evidence on how a plant-based diet can improve your health, the health of your patients and our planet, not to mention the animals we share it with. I'm Claire Day. And I'm Daisy Lund. We are both plant-based doctors with a passion for improving nutritional education. We're so excited to be presenting this podcast where we will be interviewing experts in the field, reviewing evidence, sharing our journeys and recipes to help you on your own journey to eating more plants. So welcome to In A Nutshell, the Plant-Based Health Professionals podcast. Hello everybody and welcome to episode two. Hi Claire, how are you today? Hello Daisy, I'm well thank you. Great, how's your week been? It's been good. We've had an exciting week, haven't we? Because this is the we're recording this in the week that follows the release of the first episode. Yes, that's right. So the launch of the podcast went live last week and we've had quite a lot of positive feedback so far. It's been really lovely, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, it's so good to get that good feedback because it's going to really spur us on to record more stuff. Yeah. And have you read anything interesting this week in the plant-based world that you wanted to share with listeners? Yes. So we said we were going to sort of give a mention to the Glass Toolkit, which is the Irish College of GPs. They put something together where it is focusing on planetary health and how to make healthcare more sustainable. And although it is obviously for GP practices to use, it covers in quite a concise way all the major areas of healthcare where you can really make a difference to improving the environmental factors. So, you know, there's a quick section there on what, you know, what we need to know about things like formula milk and why breastfeeding is good. There's a nice section on plant-based diet. There's a nice section on keeping active. There's a nice section on reducing antibiotic use. So, I think um, even if you're not working in healthcare, I think it's a really good whistle-stop tour of planetary health and the fact that healthcare itself takes up such a, a large portion of climate change emissions and we really need to do something about it. And it is going to be down to individuals sort of accepting changes to their inhalers and things like that. So the more that the public know about that, the better that would be. Yeah, I agree. It's such an excellent toolkit. It's so well written, isn't it? Mm. And of course, the other thing that I was going to ask you about, Daisy, was that um, we're both aware, aren't we, that the plant based on a budget fact sheet came out from plant based health professionals this week. So did you get a chance to look at that? Yes, it's really an excellent fact sheet. And we've got so many fact sheets online now, but this is a great addition to it. So for listeners, have have a look. Plant based on a budget is, is really, really important because a lot of people say, oh, eating plant-based is too expensive or it can be expensive and yes if you buy sort of more processed meat plant-based meats or processed foods it can be more but if you're sticking to the whole foods plant-based diet that we advocate for you can actually do it on a budget quite nicely and have really tasty meals so there's really lots of good ideas on that um, on that fact sheet and a few things that I'm going to incorporate as well. Mm, And I loved it because it did 
it did do the the thing sort of when you're sharing something like that with colleagues it's got the breakdown of you know how much protein and calories are in things as well and that's really good for people looking at that and getting convinced of of actually the nutritional value of a plant-based diet yeah the recipes are brilliant yeah do you have any tips for eating plant-based on a budget or anything that you learned from that particular fact sheet well I think it, it tells us some of the things that we know but like like when we got the tips from Shireen we we need to to not be trying to say everything and obviously that talks about canned vegetables and it talks about frozen vegetables and about you know you can confidently ask somebody to eat oats and explain to them that it's very easy to add a few frozen fruits to that you know you don't have to be buying expensive fresh blueberries you'll still get the same nutritional content yeah definitely I I love frozen berries and frozen fruits in general I I do incorporate them quite a lot in my diet I must say I don't incorporate much frozen vegetables so that's something I'm going to try actually um having looked at the uh the fact sheet and the thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to start putting my bread sliced in the freezer because I am terrible at wasting bread and uh, making a decision that it doesn't need to be frozen because I'm going to eat it but I think this idea of popping your loaf in the freezer and just taking out slice by slice is a really good one. So in this episode, we're going to outline why when we are living in countries like the UK with access to a range of plants to eat, a diet with meat is simply not necessary for good health and how in fact red meat in particular can be detrimental to health. We will start talking about how to go about ensuring we obtain all the essential nutrients as well as hopefully dispelling some pervasive myths surrounding micronutrients such as iron and B12. Yes, that's exactly it. That's uh, a lot to cover in one episode, but we'll do our best. So there are still voices out there that say that animal protein is better quality because it is complete. Is this not the case, Daisy? It's definitely not the case. Um, it's actually quite an outdated concept to be honest for those of you who are interested in this you probably already know there are nine essential amino acids and amino acids are what make up the proteins the building blocks of protein and and we can obtain all of these by eating a variety of plant-based foods so those of us who are on a 100% plant-based diet um, tend to eat even more protein than we need So we're unlikely to run into any problems with protein deficiency at all, um, particularly if we're getting enough calories in our diet. Okay, and so examples of complete proteins that do contain all the nine essential amino acids are soya, quinoa, chia seeds and buckwheat. Do you eat many of those in your diet, Claire? Well, we're always talking about soya, aren't we? And that's obviously what Shireen said last week we should be introducing patients to first. And um, I absolutely love tofu. So it's not a problem for me. Um, But I know quite a few people who aren't keen on it when they first have it. And it seems to be one of those foods that you have to try it in lots of different ways. And um, maybe be reintroduced to it several times like a weaning process and then it becomes your your best meal friend yeah I completely agree I think I didn't know how to cook it really before I went plant-based so once I learned particular ways of cooking it that I prefer like things like coating it and putting it in my air fryer 
makes it really nice and crispy on the outside. I quite like it like that, for example. Mm, yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, I always feel a bit guilty when I see quinoa because mm. I'm quite lazy about cooking that at home. I've always got a bag hanging around, but I tend to have it more when I'm out in, um, you know, when in poke bowls and Buddha bowls and things like that, when someone else has cooked something for me, I'm very happy to eat it. And I love that anecdote from, I think it was from David Katz, where he talks about ordering a salad, uh, a quinoa salad, and then being asked by the waiter if he wants some protein with it, you know, meaning adding in some chicken or, or tuna or something like that. And of course, he's, he says the, the quinoa is the protein. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And what about chia seeds? Do you eat uh, chia seeds regularly? I'm eating them at the moment, Daisy, because I ran out of flaxseed. And um, so I'm adding them to my porridge in the morning. Yeah, that's a really easy way, isn't it, to add them to porridge or, or a smoothie or something like that. I bake with them quite often, so I'll put them as a, a sort of egg substitute. You can use them as that sort of becomes a bit gelatinous. Flax seeds do the same thing as well. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, no, I always use um, flax eggs, but I hadn't really thought about using chia seeds for that. Yeah. And so, Claire, what about when someone gets older or if someone's unwell, for example, how do we advise people to manage their plant-based diet um, in terms of their protein needs if they have additional needs? Oh, right. So so this, so this idea that if you're, if you're sick, maybe if you've got something that needs healing, like a pressure sore, or you've had an operation, or if you're if you're older that you might need more protein so I think it depends in what way you're sick because if you are struggling to eat enough calories you you could become deficient in anything and it is true that older people are now being advised to eat slightly more protein because of sarcopenia which is obviously the muscle wasting process which happens pretty naturally as we get older and this may mean that there's more of a role for high protein and um there i'm i'm slightly nervous about saying it but we might need to be thinking about the more processed plant foods so where you get spaghetti made from edamame beans or some of the the sort of things that are made from pea protein powders you know sausages and things like that but I think as we'll be banging home when we mention aging on any of our podcasts, there are other lifestyle factors such as cardiovascular exercise and resistant exercise, which are just as important for preventing muscle wasting. Yeah, definitely. You're taking a more holistic view on that. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And I think there was an organization that, that I came across not too long ago, which is the Vegetarian for Life, who are, they're predominantly sort of putting out resources to support people who are catering for older vegetarians and vegans but some of their recipe books are really good because they are looking at recipes that look at how to sort of increase calories for people who aren't eating maybe enough and certainly that are focused on making sure that they get enough protein so it's worth checking out those resources so if you can put a link to that when we um, put the show notes together. Definitely. I've not come across that. So I'd be interested to have a read and I will attach the uh, the link to the show notes. And and in terms of protein, reaching the limit of what we were going to discuss with regards to protein today, because we've actually got Dr. Minil Patel um, coming on to our podcast fairly soon. And um, Minil's actually quite active in the social media circles. He's Dr. Iron Junkie. And so he's going to do a deep dive with us into protein on a plant-based diet. So we'll leave any further information about protein for that episode. Brilliant. So I'm looking forward to that episode. But 
what are the health risks associated with eating meat and why are we advocating for a shift of plants instead? Well, great question. Where do we even start with this one? I I was astounded to read that the WHO, the World Health Organization, classified processed meat as a grade one carcinogen. And that was back in 2015. And a grade one carcinogen means that it does cause cancer. So Mm. eating just a few rashes of bacon or one sausage a day could be increasing our risk of colorectal cancer by up to 18%. I was absolutely amazed that that I didn't know about this information before I did my own research on plant-based diets. Uh, and, you know, both the American Institute for Cancer Research and the World Cancer Research Fund have also confirmed this. So to me, it seems staggering that we're still serving processed meats, um, especially to our children in schools or in any public setting. The majority of the UK hospitals are still serving these sorts of foods and there's no warning labels on these products so how do we expect the general population to be aware of this if you know governments and other responsible agencies don't inform us Mm. interestingly red meat is also classified as a group 2a carcinogen meaning that red meat probably causes colorectal cancer right so there is that distinction um between the two groups but but both quite quite scary knowledge there but why do we think that there's such a strong link with cancer well there are many possible mechanisms to explain this and they range from the use of nitrates and nitrites in the processing of meat to the toxic compounds that are formed when meat is cooked at high temperatures and even to the presence of things like heme iron which we'll come to later when we discuss iron in a bit more detail There's a really interesting study, Claire, it was published in 2021 in the Cancer Discovery Journal that looked at the association between red meat consumption and a type of DNA damage in patients with colorectal cancer. And that study actually strengthened the links between the two. So during this episode, when I refer to certain studies, I will put all the the links in the show notes for, for listeners to have a deep dive into if they're interested. Okay, that's great. And also there's lots of other mechanisms that we think that meat can cause ill health. Um, There's the production of these advanced glycation end products that, again, I didn't know anything about um, actually until the University of Winchester plant-based course that we talked about in the last episode. Um, These advanced glycation end products or AGEs are what cause oxidative stress. um, And that can have an impact as well as things like altered hormones, dyslipidemia, um, the issues with the gut microbiome. So lots of different mechanisms where eating meat can cause ill health. Yeah, absolutely. I think the gut microbiome is an, it's an area of increasing interest and in research, but I think there's still a lot of uncertainty, isn't there, about what goes on. We know that something important is going on, but we're still at the stage of noting just associations. Can you tell us a bit more about how meat consumption can alter the gut microbiome, for example? Yeah. So if you haven't yet heard of the gut microbiome, it just consists of the microorganisms that live in our gut, an estimated two kilograms worth. Um, And the gut itself being everything really from, from mouth to anus. So these include bacteria, fungi, other microbes, and it plays a really important health role. And so if its composition changes, it can lead to many different diseases, including just the common chronic diseases like type 2 diabetes, heart disease, but also maybe some things that are, well, they were less 
common but are becoming perhaps more common like inflammatory bowel disease Mm, yeah I think we probably need a whole episode on the gut microbiome, but put simply, our dietary choices impact the health of the gut microbiome. The gut microbiome thrives on fiber-rich whole plant foods. The plants are broken down by the bacteria to produce short-chain fatty acids, which are important in a variety of ways, including in the immune system. And if you've got a diet that's deficient in fiber, such as a very meat-heavy diet, it's going to result in a reduction in the short-chain fatty acids. And with that, a reduction in the health of the gut bacteria that are going to be short of the the short-chain fatty acids to feed on. And that's going to result in poor health outcomes overall. Yeah, so instead of filling our plates with meat, we should actually be filling them full of plant foods, shouldn't we? Full of high fibre foods to help nourish and support our gut microbiomes. Yeah, I think that's true. I've I've got a friend who is very, very reluctant to call himself either vegan or plant-based, but he is sold on the idea of lots of fibre for the microbiome. And so hence, he's been proudly calling himself one of the new generation of fibertarians this week. <laughs> I think this is basically plant-based because because fibre is only in plants. Yeah, that's right. So animal products, meat, fish, dairy and eggs contain no fibre whatsoever. So again, you know, we talk a lot about the benefits of fibre and and we we won't find any of that in in animal products at all. So it's really important to try and incorporate more fibre into our diet. Yeah. So most people who are familiar with plant-based diets have probably heard the idea from the American Gut Project that we should be eating 30 different plant foods a week. Um, and, you know, there's there's lots of, of tips that we can include in future episodes about how to make sure that you're doing that. But for now, Daisy, can you talk to us a bit more about oxidative stress? Yeah, so just going back to oxidative stress and how that causes um, ill health. So oxidative stress is the imbalance between the cellular processes in our each of our cells. You've got oxidation and reduction. Claire, this is taking me back to my medical school days Don't. <laughs> and lectures. So Don't go I'm there. not, <laughs> not going to spend too long on it, but it is important to understand because it's oxidative stress that leads to protein damage. And, and that's no good. Nobody wants important proteins in their DNA or their cell membranes to be damaged as that's what causes chronic disease and can lead to, to further disease. So this these stressors, they come in many forms. And we know the common ones, things like smoking, irradiation, those sorts of things. But here in particular, we're discussing our diets. And diets can be a big contributor to the production of these AGEs that we mentioned, these advanced glycation end products. These are what cause that oxidative stress. So foods that generate the most AGEs are fried foods, processed foods, and animal-derived foods, so meat, dairy, and eggs. Plant foods generate the least AGEs. Okay, so shall we move on to iron since we've mentioned iron a couple of times already? Yeah, so the first thing I'd like to say about iron is that when you see people with iron deficiency, you don't really find that it's amongst people who are vegetarian or or even plant-based. It is a really common worldwide nutrient deficiency. 
And so it it really just isn't an issue that's specific to plant-based diets, although people often consider this. So it is completely possible to obtain sufficient iron from a plant-based diet, and there's no need to have red meat, even if, as we've talked about before, that we'll often get letters from other health professionals saying, you know, this person's a vegetarian, so they had blood loss during surgery, so I've given them an iron infusion. I mean, that was something that I read just today in a letter so yeah yeah definitely like you say it's definitely not exclusive to um, a diet dietary issues only and and listeners they might already know that iron is an essential nutrient which is why we talk about it and it's so important it plays a, a role in oxygen transport by binding to hemoglobin and there are a couple of different types of iron aren't there Claire yeah okay so we've basically got the heme iron and the non-heme iron And the iron that you find in animal sources is in the heme form, and the iron in plants is called non-heme. And it is true that heme iron is absorbed more readily. There's something about how we we take it up in our gut. So plant-based eaters may have lower iron stores. But this isn't the bad thing that you'd expect, because we have studies now showing that excess heme iron causes the thing that you mentioned earlier, oxidative stress, which can be associated with chronic disease. So these studies have shown to link heme iron with increased risks of cardiovascular disease, cancer and type 2 diabetes. And um, we'll go back to the studies that, that show that evidence in the show notes. Yeah, definitely. So iron's important, but actually we don't need too much of it by the sounds of things. Where do you, from a sort of practical point of view, where do you get most of your iron from in your diet? So I think mostly I would say that I get it from the things like chickpeas, lentils. Um, There'll be, you know, it's in soya, as we've said, and I eat quite a lot of chocolate. We've we've talked about that being a source of iron. Oh, yeah. Chocolate. I love that. That's a source of iron. That really made me very happy. What about you? Yeah, same. I like, um, I eat a lot more beans than I used to, actually. So before I was plant-based, I thought beans were a bit boring. I sort of equate them beans on toast but now I make all sorts of things with beans so I use red kidney beans for example to make meatballs um, I use cannellini beans sometimes to make a hummus rather than chickpeas we quite frequently have a mixed bean chili for example so I do like uh, the lentils and beans in my diet and and seeds I get a lot of iron from seeds um, do you eat many seeds Claire? Yeah so we've mentioned the chia seeds and I try and chuck things like sunflower seeds into salads. And the other thing that I eat quite a lot of, which is a good source of iron, is tahini, because that's, of course, made from sesame seeds. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Seeds and nuts as well. I frequently snack on nuts such as cashews, walnuts, almonds, etc. Or I blend them sometimes into sort of make a, a, a sauce with them. That's quite nice. Mm. And then the other one that is a, is a classic one is the dark leafy veg. So... Have we mentioned the sort of spinach, kale and chard and and broccoli and things like that? I eat a lot of those with pasta and things. Yeah, absolutely. There's some really strange sources of iron iron that I wasn't aware of. So oats, for example, never thought that would be a good source of iron, but they are and Mm. I eat them pretty much every day. And dry fruit. So I do like dried apricots. So I sort of cut them into bits and sprinkle them on the oats yeah <laughs> in the morning they're a really good source of iron um but really funny ones actually that I hadn't not really come across and haven't tried yet um ancient grains like amaranth do you eat them Claire 
No, I'm not aware that I have. No, <laughs> no, I haven't either. It's one for us to both try then and, and report back. <laughs> right, Amaranth, how do you suggest cooking with that? Do you know, I don't know. Maybe the listeners can uh, can email us and let us know if they've tried amaranth as their iron source and what they thought. But yeah, there are all sorts of, of really good plant sources of iron. I think we've mentioned most of them, actually. Blackstrap molasses, that's the other one, actually, we haven't mentioned. Do you, have you, do you eat that much in your diet? I've got some in my cupboard and I've used it for sort of usually like for sort of different flapjack recipes and things like that. But otherwise, no, not too much of that. Anyway, in preparation for this podcast, we were talking about phytates, oxalates and polyphenols and uh, the idea that they can actually inhibit iron absorption. I'm glad you mentioned this, Claire, because it seems to be quite a misunderstood area. So phytates are antioxidants. They're found in grains and pulses. Oxalates are also found in these foods, but also in vegetables and fruits. And polyphenols we find mainly in tea and coffee. Now, the issue with all of these is they can inhibit the absorption of iron from plant sources. But by adding vitamin C to the meal, you can actually increase the absorption. So it's really important to combine certain foods to ensure adequate iron is absorbed. Do do this, Claire. Yeah, yeah. I, I try and remember to. So, so it's the old tricks like where you get a lemon and you squeeze it onto your spinach uh, or, or any of your green veg. And... Um, it's usually a component if I make broccoli pasta that kind of thing then I add lemon juice just as part of the recipe but you can add things that you probably do anyway if you've got red peppers in a in a bean chili that's you know that's the vitamin c but then if you really want to be sure you can you can do very deliberate things like having an orange or a kiwi after you've had a curry yeah, great idea. And and I try and avoid tea and coffee for example with my meals um to avoid the you know inhibiting the iron absorption from my meals so I'll leave about an hour now between tea and coffee in Mm -hmm. a meal so that can help there are other ways also to reduce the impact uh, through things like cooking soaking and sprouting have you done any sprouting not as much as I should have done I've I did sprout some chickpeas once um, after I'd sort of soaked a lot of them and then was going to cook them and I put them in the fridge uh, for a couple of days and they sprouted and they were really great in a salad Wow, that's interesting. I've never sprouted, but I keep thinking I need to I need to do this. And what about things like using a cast iron pan? Have you come across that for iron? Mm. Yeah, of course, that's in um, Shireen's book, isn't it? So I have got a cast iron frying pan. Oh, interesting. Okay, mm. so that's another uh, good way of adding a bit of iron to your food. It's not nonstick, though, so I'm not, I'm not that <laughs> keen on it. So so thinking about you working as a doctor, do you give guidance to people that you see about um, how to make sure they're meeting their RDA for iron requirements? Yeah, so RDA or recommended daily amounts, they'll vary between ages and uh, stages of life. So we know, for example, pregnant women or menstruating women will need more iron. Um, but certainly as a GP in the consultation, I'll be more than happy to check iron levels if a patient has the symptoms of iron deficiency. So common ones are things like being feeling tired, fatigued, breathless, there may be some pallor. Um, and in, in those circumstances, of course, we would check iron levels. Uh, unfortunately, in general practice, most of the iron deficiency that we see is related to blood loss rather than dietary causes. Um, so from innocent things such as a, a woman menstruating monthly, uh, or more sinister causes of blood loss, um, 
So we always do need to, to think about those in, in practice. Yeah. So I think that we don't want people to just be taking iron supplements when they feel tired if what they actually need are further investigations to, to um, establish the cause of the iron deficiency. Yeah, 100%. So with all those lovely foods we've mentioned, you hopefully won't need any iron supplements uh, at all. But let's move on to B12 because B12 is also essential, isn't it, Claire? Can you tell us a bit more about why that is? When I first went vegan, the mantra was very much that you may well have enough B12 stores for nine years and so that you could be ticking along quite well and all of a sudden you'd get sick and you'd get really sick because it was really bad to run out B12. And it's true you can get sick with deficiency because B12 is needed to make red blood cells, so a deficiency will cause anemia. It's used in cell metabolism and in making DNA. And, and just generally to allow our body to work properly, particularly the nerves. So you'll find doctors checking levels when a person comes in with unexplained symptoms like tiredness or pins and needles. But how does taking a B12 supplement fit with the dream of being whole food plant-based? And that is to say that there's nothing unnatural in the diet, nothing processed. What do you think about that, Daisy? Yeah, I mean, I've seen lots of arguments online, on social media that go against a plant-based diet, citing B12 as the reason for that. You know, the comment often comes along the lines of, well, if you need to supplement your diet, then it means that a plant-based diet is insufficient to meet your needs and you should just go back to eating animals or drinking animals' milk. Well, firstly, my response to that would be supplementation is widespread and certainly not confined to plant-based eaters. But more importantly, B12 isn't naturally found in animal products. So realizing that was actually quite huge for me. Yes. B12 is produced by bacteria. It's not produced by animals or plants. So animal foods tend to be high in B12 because the animals accumulate the bacteria throughout their lives and, and because they're supplemented with B12 themselves. So the fact that we give feeds to pigs and chickens that are supplemented to B12 is often kept quite quiet, I think. I didn't know that the majority of B12 supplements produced worldwide are fed to livestock. That's from the DSM supplementation guidelines. And, and ruminant animals are also supplemented with cobalt in order to make B12. So, you know, in the past, mm. vitamin B12 would have been reliably present in plant foods but with the modern sort of hygienic practices of cleaning, sanitizing, the use of antibiotics and pesticides, most plant foods are no longer a reliable source of bacteria to produce the B12. But that's not a bad thing. We don't want bacteria-infested food, so um, we, we would recommend that actually we maintain our sanitization practices, but that everyone who's eating a plant-based diet supplement with B12, because we know, as you mentioned, B12 deficiency can be very serious. So we both take a B12 supplement every day and it's nice and easy. Yeah. And um, it's the remembering to take it. So I always keep a bottle in my drawer at work. Yeah, that's a good idea, isn't it? Yeah. But is it just plant-based people who should take B12? No, not necessarily. So actually, currently in the USA, um, the recommendation is all adults over the age of 50, regardless of their diet, should supplement with B12. You know, aging seems to be a risk factor for B12 deficiency. We think that's likely due to reduction in the stomach acid that's needed for absorbing B12. But also, as we get older, we might be on other medications. So things like PPIs, antiacids, 
some anti-diabetic medications like metformin, these will all hinder the absorption of B12. Uh, and, you know, anecdotally, I'm picking up a lot more B12 deficiency now in practice. And again, as you mentioned with iron, none of the, my patients are plant-based. Uh, you know, I was reading Shireen's book recently, the Eating Plant-Based Scientific Answers book, which is an excellent uh, resource. Um, and I read in that about the Framingham Offspring Study, which examined B12 status. I think it was 3,000 omnivores or thereabouts and found between the, the ages of 26 to 83 there was a 39% of that cohort had low to normal B12 levels. So that that's a huge amount, actually. And I think the more we check in practice with people with symptoms, the more we probably will find, actually. Yeah, I mean, anecdotally as well, it's it's um, use of things like nitrous oxide, isn't it? The um, recreational drug that's been dropping oh, yeah. B12 levels in young people, which is, which is pretty terrifying, actually, because that can do a lot of damage. But... I mean, that said, I think that as the number of people eating plant-based grows, unfortunately, we may find more cases of low B12. And um, there's quite a simple reason for this. And that's that people are starting to pick up on the broad idea of um, plant-based is good. But the number of people who are actually looking to how to do it properly and, you know, have actually got that knowledge about a B12 supplement for plant-based diets in their community, it may not be that high. And I was aware of that because just in my surgery yesterday, I found two people who were eating plant-based and who I asked both of them, you know, they were both about a year in and I asked them if they were taking any supplements and neither of them were. And so with the second one, I opened my drawer and I said, this is a really good supplement. It was the veg one, one that, that we were going to mention and said, try one of these, get these online. You really need to take this if you're going to be seriously plant-based. And I think that's because often people have done it gradually. So they've started maybe by cutting out red meat and they've been, that's fine, that's healthy. Then they've cut out dairy and then maybe they've carried on, um, maybe they've cut out chicken, but maybe they've carried on eating fish and they think, oh, I'm okay. And they don't really see themselves as plant-based until it's too late. And by that point, there could have been something that they needed to replace in their diet. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's why we want to sort of reach out and educate everyone about the, the, the how to do plant-based diet healthy and 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 sustainable for, for the rest of your lives really and, and so Claire you mentioned a, a, a b12 supplement that you take called veg one what form does the b12 supplement generally come in and um, do people need to worry about finding the animal free versions of it for example Right. So first of all, I'm not aware that the B12 supplements, any of them are produced from animals. And I think we might be confusing this here because obviously you have to watch for it with, with vitamin D. But there's cyanocobalamin, which is synthetic and it's more shelf stable. So you don't need to worry so much about it going out of date. And there's methylcobalamin, which is the more active form. So they're both fine. But there might be some rare cases where cyanocobalamin needs to be avoided. So, for example, in patients with severe renal failure, it's not going to apply to the majority of the population. But if you're not sure, check with whoever you're seeing about your health. And, um, you know, obviously that goes for anybody who's got a, a serious health condition. Yeah. So generally, cyanocobalamin is fine for most people. And what about the de uh, daily recommended intake? So 
The daily recommended intake will vary with age and stages of life. Most adults need 2.4 micrograms a day, but the absorption of B12 is complex. So you will see doses of B12 supplements that are much higher than the recommended daily amount. And that is initially a bit confusing. So we know that it is better to take supplements in lower doses more frequently because the absorption is achieved by the help of intrinsic factor in a healthy stomach. And by lower doses, I mean, you know, 10 to 50 micrograms a day. Or you can do it by higher doses once or twice a week. And here, the absorption by intrinsic factor is saturated, so it relies on passive diffusion. Now, there is one study that showed daily cyanocobalamin was better absorbed than those having higher doses once or twice a week. And we'll link that study. But there's not enough evidence yet to say a particular form is better than others. So it doesn't really matter whether you take it as a tablet, whether you take something you pop under your tongue, or if you use a spray. So the Vegan Society, I think, is recommending a minimum of 10 micrograms a day. And if you're getting up to the higher dose, then you're looking at something like 2,000 micrograms a week. Yeah. If you are an older adult, you may need more because you won't be absorbing it as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think we both use a supplement from the Vegan Society, which is called Veg One. We referred to that uh, already. That mm. I was checking has 25 micrograms of cyanocobalamin, amongst other things. Um, it suits me well. It's I just had a quick look at the price again. It's six months supply for £12. So at £2 a month, it's not breaking the bank. And when I last had my B12 levels checked, they were excellent. Yeah. And if you are told your levels are low, the NICE clinical knowledge summary was recently updated to suggest that people with no symptoms of deficiency could have injections twice a year or oral tablets where the deficiency is thought to be related to diet. So you don't need a high dose replacement. That's interesting. I'm going to have to read that that summary as well. Claire, thanks for bringing that to, to our attention. But what about folate? Uh, that's another cause of anemia. Do we need to top up folate or is there another supplement for that? Well, I was really pleased to see some good old straightforward advice in the same nice guidance that I've just mentioned that um, you can just use diet with this and the, the guidance for increasing absorption of folic acid from the diet is to increase your intake of broccoli, Brussels sprouts, asparagus, peas, chickpeas and brown rice and that's a fantastic improvement because the list of foods used to include things like liver and when I was giving patients advice if I was sending them a text message about what to eat I found that I was editing that a little bit because obviously the downsides of, of eating liver and because actually folate deficiency is more of an indicator of poor diet, you don't particularly need to worry about low levels on a plant-based diet at all. Yeah, that's why I thought generally it seems to be really quite prominent in plant-based foods, isn't it? So we get a lot of folate just by eating our veg, which is great. Mm. Great. So there's a lot that we've uh, discussed in this episode, Claire. So um, listeners, please have a look at the show notes in your own time if you want to take a deep dive into any of the further literature that we've mentioned. We've referenced a few studies and they'll all be there. We did mention earlier that we were going to do a little calculation looking at tonight's dinner of uh, how much protein and iron we were going to be eating. So, Daisy, do you want to kick off? Yeah, yeah, the what's for dinner tonight section, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm going to admit, though, Claire, I calculated my protein in my meal, but I didn't get a chance to do my iron, I'm sorry. But I won't have my meal with a, 
a cup of tea so I can maximize my iron absorption. Yeah. Um, tonight I'm going to have um, a crispy tofu with rice and broccoli. So it's one of those meals that we have on rotation because we all love it so much. Um, I tend to just cut the tofu into strips and season it and coat it with some corn flour. And, and now I've got my air fryer, I just pop it in there for five, five to 10 minutes and it's delicious, crispy on the outside and soft on the inside. And we have that with, you know, whatever sauce is going. So a sweet chili or a hoisin or something oriental normally. So I can serve it with rice and broccoli steamed. And I normally pour some sesame seeds and some chopped up spring onions on top. So it's really tasty. And just looking at the protein in that alone, because I have a, a good portion of tofu um, that calculated that as being 10 grams, about two to four grams in my broccoli, depending on how much broccoli mm. I eat. Um, same in the rice, and then another gram or two in the sesame seed. So in total, I'm averaging about 20 grams of protein just for that meal. Bearing in mind that the RDA for an average woman is 45 grams, that one meal is almost half my RDA. And that's clearly not the only thing I'm going to eat today. Um, I'll have two other meals and, and probably a snack as well. So I'm, yeah, very happy with my protein intake tonight. How about you, Claire? Yeah, well done. Um, so I'm going to, I've got to do a really quick dinner tonight. So I'm doing something very basic. I'm, I'm envious of the fact you're having tofu because I'm actually going to put tempeh with my meal, which I like less, but it is very high in protein. Um, so I'm going to be getting just some pre-chopped vegetables for a stir fry that's got sort of spring greens and cabbage and uh, uh, bean sprouts and mushrooms in there. And actually the bag weighs about 400 grams. And because of that, there's about 10.4 grams of protein in that bag alone. And then I'm adding to that half of a block of tempeh and so I've looked that up and in 100 grams of tempeh that's about 20 grams of protein wow. and um, I did get a little bit of fatigue like you trying to calculate the iron um, <laughs> the tempeh has got 2.8 milligrams of iron and I'm probably looking um, for someone in my position I'm probably looking to try and get about nine milligrams of iron a day there will be some in the vegetables, but you have to break it down and, you know, there'll be, there will be another good two to three milligrams in that pile of vegetables. Yeah. Sounds like we'll need a dietitian to come on and break down our, our iron and other micronutrients in, well, our, in our recipes for us. <laughs> we do, we do, but we're also constantly trying to make the point that, um, if you eat a, a diet that's got a wide range of, of plants that you don't need to think too much about what they contain. We're just, we're just there making a point really today, aren't we? Absolutely. And I love the idea of tempeh because again, that's another... We can swap. <laughs> well, I didn't even know about tempeh before. Tempeh is, is, is a bit like tofu, isn't it? But it's a fermented soya product. Is that right? Yeah. And it's all pressed together and you can slice it up and toss it, heat up in a, in a stir fry, just like you would with tofu. It's got a sort of slightly stronger, more acidic taste though. Mm, I find it quite nutty as well. It's quite yeah. dense. It's really tasty. And, and you just sort of stir, stir fry it all up with your vegetables. Yeah. And then I'll add um, just a kind of sort of homemade kind of sweet and sour sauce with that, or I might use some red Thai curry paste, one or the other. I'm I'm focusing on being quick tonight. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's funny we're both going for Oriental tonight. We were, both went for curry last time we had Shireen on. It's like a yeah. theme now. We're not it's even, true. We're not it's even true. We don't even rediscuss it, no. <laughs> Be Italian next week, hopefully. No. Well, right. So we've had a, a lovely chat through things there, haven't we? And I think, um, yeah, we've certainly improved our knowledge putting the episode together. So we'll wrap things up there. And as you've already alluded to, we've got a next episode that's going to be featuring a real protein expert. So we look forward to that, don't we? Cast, I hope listeners enjoyed that. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate us. That really does help. And send us emails if you've got any comments, feedback or questions. Great. All right. Thanks, Claire. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We aim to bring you the most up-to-date evidence-based information about the benefits of a plant-based diet and we'll add all the links for further reading in the show notes. Please remember that everything discussed on here does not constitute individual medical advice, so please consult your healthcare provider if you have any medical concerns. In the meantime, please subscribe to the In A Nutshell podcast on your usual streaming service and download our future podcast for free. And since food can be the best medicine, don't forget to share us with all your colleagues, friends and family. Until next time.